sorry, technical difficulties already. That's when you have somebody not overly smart setting things up, it goes this way. So um, the, the Bible is laid out in two Testaments, obviously. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, it's not that hard. The Old Testament is older than the New Testament. That's why they said it that way. And remember, the Old Testament was written before, before the, the birth of Jesus. And the New Testament was written after the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, it's that simple. Old Testament written before the birth of Jesus. New Testament written after the birth of Jesus. Okay? So what this means is in the New Testament, then, we have a couple different sections. We have the Gospels. And then we have Acts. And then we have Paul's just a reminder for everybody to mute their screen. Yeah, we'll mute when we can. And um, so we are now in this section of Paul's letters. So there's four Gospels. You guys know that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's one book of Acts, which was written by Luke. And then Paul's letters, there's 13 of them, okay? And they go from Romans through Philemon. And... They are in order of length. As you guys know, the longest to the shortest. Okay? And at the end of Paul's letters, you have this group of letters that are written to individuals. So you have first and second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So there are letters written to individuals. Okay? So Paul's letters are all named for the audience, for the recipients. So the church in Rome is the recipient of Romans. And so in Galatia, um, we, okay, you haven't told hearing me. Hmm. Okay, some people can hear me, some people can't. I hope you can hear me. Um, so the, the letters of Paul are named for their audience in order of length. And then at the end, we have Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And then after that, we have the general epistles, or the general letters, okay? And those are from Hebrews to Jude, okay? And they are also in order of length, okay? So the general epistles are also in order of length, and they're called general because they are not written to a specific audience. So it's not written to one named church or another named church. It's written to the churches at large. Okay. So, and the authors of these, these books are named after their author. Okay. So they're named after their author, except for the book of Hebrews, because we don't know who wrote Hebrews. And then after that, you have the book of Revelation, which is the apoc, you know, apocalyptic book of the New Testament, Apocalypse. And that is written by John, the author of the fourth gospel, and also the letter, the author of three of these letters. Okay. Now, that's the New Testament, all written in Greek, right? The entire New Testament was written in Greek originally. Okay. So some of us learn and study, some of us even teach Greek, so we can read it as close to the original as possible. Um, that's the New Testament. Now, we are going to look at Galatians, which is one of Paul's letters. Okay, so this is one of Paul's letters. It's 
So you have Romans and you have first and second Corinthians and then Galatians. Okay. So it's just, it's just there because of length. So it's just longer than Ephesians and shorter than second Corinthians. That's actually the way it is. Um, so that's the situation as far as the letter in the new Testament goes. Anybody have any questions about the physical layout of the Bible, especially the new Testament? I mean, even old Testament's fine, but if you have any questions about the way the Bible is actually presented to us or physically laid out for us. Were those decisions made throughout the years? Well, um, the first time we really have this order preserved for us is in the fourth century. Um, we have different lists throughout the first four centuries of the church that, that move these sections around a little bit. But remember, by the end of the second century, so by 200 AD, by 200 AD, you have two sections. You have the Gospels and Paul's letters being circulated. Ooh, there's a lecture letter in there. So you have the Gospels and Paul's letters being circulated as books. So we have evidence from the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century. So around 200 AD, we have evidence that the church had two volumes, at least kind of in the library. One would be the Gospels and one would be Paul's letters. And those are being circulated through the churches. And they contained the four, the four Gospels and then all 13, sometimes 14 Paul's letters. Because remember, sometimes Hebrews gets included in Paul's letters. Okay, so if it does, it's after Romans. So by 200 AD, we have good evidence that there were the, the Gospels was one book being kind of circulated, and the Paul's letters were the second book there being circulated. And then you had other books that were also being circulated, but not in the same kind of. These are actually books, like you think of a book. But then you had Acts that was sometimes being circulated and 1 Peter and 1 John. Those were the other books that were commonly being circulated kind of with these books. Okay. And then the other ones, the, the rest of the Catholic epistles and Revelation um, become more prominent as we go later. Okay. But they're, they're kind of a later, they're the later edition. So what you have in the Gospels, Paul's letters, Acts, 1 Peter, and 1 John is what's called the Homa Legumina. That's your favorite word for your pet turtle. Homa Legumina. Okay? So these were the books that everyone in the church accepted as being the, what makes up the New Testament are the four Gospels, Paul's letters, Acts, 1 Peter, and 1 John. Those are the Homo Legumina, and that was being circulated by the end of the first century, beginning of the second, or in the second century, beginning of the third century. Okay, so that's that's where they kind of got. In, so what that meant is they could be in different orders. You could have Paul's books first, and then the Gospel, whatever, because they were two kind of separate collections. They got put in this order eventually when you get to the middle of the fourth century. Okay, and then that becomes kind of the established order of the books. But we do have a little bit of movement because if, if people viewed Hebrews as written by Paul, which some people do, then that gets moved up into Paul's letters. Okay, so that would change the order a little bit, but that's kind of a normal move. Okay, 
Um, there are some different lists as we go throughout the years, but this this is the list that really kind of is is the most common and then obviously ends up being our New Testament. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions? I, I have kind of a, I don't know if this is a relevant question, but does does the order of the, the, the books in the New Testament or in the old, does it present any um, benefit in terms of reading straight through? I mean, is there any, you know, I mean, I, I understand that there's some doctrinal, you know, the gospels are first because they're the most sort of critical and you read those and other things kind of follow those. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, it seems like, you know, I, I, you've, you've laid it out here pretty good, but um, it, it seems like the way that we tend to do Bible studies are either topically or, you know, we're typically looking for particular angles on things. And so we'll choose books to read that way. But is it, is it advisable or inadvisable to read straight through? Okay. So, so my advice and, you know, is that um, you start with the New Testament. If you've, if you've never read the Bible, the best thing to do is start with the New Testament and start with the Gospel of John. Okay, you want to start with the Gospel of John. It is the story that presents kind of a, a combination of Jesus' life and what he did and also the doctrinal understanding of why, so the theology of why he did what he did. And another cool thing about John is it says the beginning of John is in the beginning. So, you know, you're, you're starting in the beginning, which is fun. So if you start with the Gospel of John, the reason I say that is in the history of the church, the Gospels were seen as the key books in the New Testament. If you're looking for books that are most important in the New Testament, the Gospels are the most important books because those are the books of the life and ministry of Jesus. Okay, so you want to read a Gospel first. If you want to read all four Gospels, it's fine, but most people can't do that or don't want to do that. So you pick one, either John or Mark. Okay, those are usually the two you want to start with. Mark because it's short that's really why. Okay. And then when you go to Paul's letters, you want to read, this is cool for tonight. You want to read Galatians, Galatians and Romans. Those are kind of your main Pauline books that you want to read because those books really outline for you Paul's theology. Okay. This really gives you a good overview of what Paul is teaching in the rest of the books. And then when you get those down, then you can go start going through and what i would say is after you read a couple books of paul then you want to read first peter and first john and acts because that'll really give you a full picture of the new testament theology and what's going on then when you've read those you kind of then are ready to go back and read some old testament books because these books will have been quoting a bunch of old testament stories and prophets and ideas and then you can go back and actually read the stories and then you want to probably start with Genesis and then don't be offended and then skip, right? Read Genesis, maybe read the first 20 or the 30, maybe the first 30, 34 chapters of Exodus. But then I really recommend you do that and then you skip. Okay. So you want to skip and you want to read the prophets. You want to read Isaiah, which is going to be really hard to do, but skim through Isaiah Get a feel of, of what the prophets are talking about. You want to read some of the kings, some of the stories of David. So you want to think of 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. Those are good books to read to get a history of what's going on in Israel. But but what, what you really want to make sure you're doing is you want to spend most of your time reading the New Testament. You really do. 
Um, this is going to be how you understand what the Old Testament is actually saying. And so I really recommend you spend a lot of time in the New Testament. So read a gospel, read a couple of Paul's letters, read that, go back and read an Old Testament book, and then come back to the New Testament, read the other gospel you didn't read, and the other ones of Paul's letters you didn't read, you know, and maybe find some other letter in there you didn't read, go back and read an Old Testament book, and then come back to the New Testament, read the other gospel you didn't read, and just keep doing it until you've kind of got a, a basis. But but we what we really want to talk about, and we'll get there a lot in Galatians, is that the Bible is only properly understood when you read it as focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus, even the Old Testament. Okay, so this is the fundamental understanding, and that's going to be explained in these New Testament books. Okay? That's good. Thank you. Do you have a recommendation for the order to watch the Star Wars movies? Yes. Only watch the original three. Don't even admit the other ones exist. Just... What other ones? And on shot first. That's right. Exactly. No, that's wrong. No, only one never person shot, shot at all. That's Han right. Only, only one shot. shot. Okay, so Galatians. Look at let's look at our sheet for Galatians. Okay, so may Galatians, I ask a question? Yes, yeah, Susan, please. Susan. Okay. Um, are all the Protestant Bibles the same sequence of books? I I would say yes. Okay. Um the, the, the Orthodox Bibles have a different order sometimes. Um, but yes, most of the Bibles that you find in the West published um, in American publishing houses or, or Western publishing houses will have this order. This is the established order of the, of the books in the West. And I don't mean West like Kansas or, you know, awesome states like that. I mean, like in the West philosophically. Okay, thank you. Yep. Kevin, when did they start calling it the Bible? Um, that's a good. That's actually a very good question. Um, early on, because the word Bible is simply the Greek word for book. And the reason that's an interesting question is because um, the Bible, the book, the New Testament canon, is actually one of the first things we have historically that was written or assembled in what's called a codex and a codex is actually what we know as a book it was that's when we went from scrolls to parchment paper that was bound between two covers okay so the movement from scrolls to loose leaf parchment then to actual pages with a cover on it that's the codex. And there's actually a lot of scholarship that suggests that the codex and the New Testament developed together. Matter of fact, some of the earliest codices we have are New Testament texts. One scholar actually believes that the codex was invented in order to house the gospels, which is a really interesting theory. Um, and he, he actually looks at the length of the gospels and the, and the first kind of established physical way to do a codex and it actually matches the length of the gospels. Can't really prove that, but that's, it's, but the point is, um, so when you start calling it a book, it's actually quite early on. So you have these books, okay, which is, it's just Bible, Bible just means book. Biblos is the Greek word for, for book. Kevin, when did codexes appear? 
that about the end of the second century. Okay, so biblos is just the Greek word for book. And, and what this means, is, so when you say Bible, the reason our book says Holy Bible on it is because we want to say this book is a holy book. Yeah, so so that's the question is when do codexes actually start appearing? And that's when you that's when you start hearing this. The early, the beginning of the third, the end of the second century to the beginning of the third century is really where you start seeing um, the codices really, really taking shape and, and kind of taking off and being the standard. Um, but you have evidence of them a little earlier than that. Okay, about the same time you start having evidence in the New Testament writings. So one of the cool things is when you see a writing with on both sides, that's a that's a sign that it's a page. So you can actually find stuff pretty quickly and say, oh, this is actually a page versus a scroll. Okay, and you'll see that um, if you look online, you can see that. All Thank right, you. so you're welcome. So getting to uh, Galatians specifically. Now look at your sheet. So as we already said, the author is Paul. The Apostle Paul. So remember, Paul, he's one of the apostles, but he's not one of the 12. Okay, so the 12 apostles, particularly, are the 12 guys that were with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Okay, and you have lists of them throughout the New Testament. Not all the lists agree on their names because in, in the New Testament times, guys went with, by different names. Okay, so um, we always have Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They're always first four because they get top billing because we know most about them. So we have Peter, James, and John. Those are kind of the three biggies. Andrew is Philip is, is a Simon Peter's brother, right? And then you usually get um, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, and then depending Thaddeus or whatever, Nathaniel can be in there sometimes, okay? And then you get James the Lesser and Judas, not Iscariot, and then you get you know, whoever else, you kind of fill out the list with, and then Judas, is, Judas Iscariot is always the last because, you know, you know, right? He's always last. So Paul is an apostle, but not, not one of the 12, okay? And this is actually a major issue in the book of Galatians. That's why I bring this up, because in the book of Galatians, this is going to become an issue. Paul says, I'm an apostle, but they say, but you're not one of the 12. So you're not as authoritative as the 12. Okay. So we'll listen to you, but you're, we're only going to listen to you. If you, if the 12 apostles agree with you, because remember the 12 apostles really were kind of the, the leaders of the church. They're the leaders of the church, especially the church in Jerusalem. Okay, and that's in the book of Acts. So the 12 apostles, and then obviously Judas is, is, is out. And then the beginning of Acts, we elect Matthias to fill in his spot. So we have the 12 apostles kind of going. And then Paul comes along. Um, Paul comes along and becomes an apostle, not, not with the 12, but kind of a different guy. He's, he's all of a sudden just out there on his own saying, I'm an apostle. And what happens is, think about it this way. The best way to think about it is that Jesus dies and rises in 30 AD. It's just a round number. We don't know the dates, right? But it's a round number. Paul is probably converted around 34 AD. So Paul is converted to Christianity from Judaism in 34 AD. This is in Acts chapter 9. Okay. 
Now, at the time, Saul was not Saul he, or Paul. He was known as Saul. Like I said, they have two names off, often. So Saul is a Hebrew name named after the first king of Israel, Saul. And then Paul is actually a Greek name that means small or diminutive or something like that. So he's converted to Christianity in 34 AD. So he's four years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he kind of, he's kind of a Johnny come lately when it comes to the apostles. This is the problem. And so in Galatians, one of the questions is, and we'll see that, is that um, they're wondering if Paul has the authority to teach the gospel or not. Okay, so we'll see that as we go. That's an important thing. So the author, so this is the author, is Paul the apostle, but not one of the 12, who was Saul, he was converted to Christianity. And then the second thing is the date of the writing. So Galatians, um, there are theories on and when all the books are written, but I'm going to tell you kind of the, the one that I think holds the most weight in the New Testament. And that is that this is a very early letter of Paul, that it was written between 48 and, do I say 52 or 51? Yeah, 52-ish. So somewhere in that that time frame. I would lean more towards 48. That's usually what I say Galatians was written, was around 48. And we'll get there in chapter two why I think that. Um, but what this means is this is actually very early in Paul's writings, maybe one of his first letters. Okay. I date Galatians as one of Paul's first letters. Some people will date it as late as 55. Remember, Paul is converted in 34. He dies in 65. Okay. He dies as part of the persecution of the Christians in Rome. Both Paul and Peter die in 65-ish, the mid-60s, under the persecution in Rome. Okay, they're martyred for their faith. So whenever you're talking about Paul's dating, you got to kind of not date, he didn't like date people, but dating of Paul's life, you got to think these, we basically have 31 years of his activity between 34, his conversion and 65, his death. That's it. Okay. So all of his missionary journeys, all that kind of stuff, all of his writing, that's all in 31 years ish. Okay. So I put this as a very early letter of Paul, and I, I'll explain that as we go, why we do that and what it matters. But that's that's kind of what's going on. Um, and the audience, he's writing to the churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia, at this time of his writing, is not a city. It's a region of cities. It's a region of towns, of communities, and it's basically in modern-day Turkey. Okay, so it's going to be part of modern day Turkey, and um, then it was part of what's called Asia Minor. Okay, that's how they referred to it. So it's this it's this region. Um, oddly enough, the 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 term Galatian is actually the same as the however you pronounce that word, the Celts or the Celts. Okay, it's the same peoples group. It's the Gauls, right? The Gauls. And there's a long history of that. Um, they're still kind of around certain places, but that's who settled Galatia. Okay, the Celts of the, the Gauls. All right. And then um, the purpose of the book. Oh, so so the important thing about this is they're they're probably mainly Gentile converts. Mainly. 
mixed in with Jewish converts. Okay, and remember, this is the big issue in the New Testament is this, this question of Jew and Gentile converts and kind of how that works. Okay, and we'll get there. All right, so the purpose of the book is to defend the gospel, the true gospel, which is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So, so that's the gospel, that salvation is by grace, by God's grace, through faith, all because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when you say this, when you say salvation is by grace through faith because of Jesus, the, the corollary to that is not by works. My handwriting is not doing well tonight. So not by works. So the, the true gospel that, that Paul is going to defend in Galatians is that salvation is by grace through faith not by works, okay? And when we say salvation, that's kind of a, a Western word that we use to colloquialize this. What we mean is that our sins are forgiven, that we have peace with God, and that we receive eternal life, at, eternal life as a gift. So we will live forever. That's what we mean by salvation. We mean that we have been reconciled with God, so we have peace with God. Our sins are forgiven. We are God's child and we live forever. That's what salvation really, that's kind of the, the fullness of it, okay? And what and what Paul's teaching in Galatians is that reality, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and eternal life is accomplished by Jesus' death and resurrection and then given to believers, given to you as a gift, freely. You don't earn it. It's just given to you, okay? That's Galatians. Any questions so far? I have a question about Paul and the other apostles. Um, do we understand that by the time he starts writing these epistles that he has already, my understanding is that, so Paul has his conversion. He is, um, you know, in Damascus or whatever, uh, leaves there, starts preaching directly with authority from Christ uh, and does that for a while before he meets up, you know, to kind of be validated or I, I don't know what we would even call it. I mean, you can't have more validation than from Jesus, but at some point the rest of the church is like, Oh, Hey, you were killing us before. And now where, where are we on all of this? Oh. So by the time he starts writing these epistles, do you know, do we know, has that already happened? So he's not, he's not also circulating letters in addition to doing missionary work and preaching. And, and then my second question is, do we know much from any record whatsoever about the, um, you know, what, what that, reckoning was like between Peter and his group and, and Paul, or was it just, I, I know they talk about it in Acts, but I don't know. It seems like it would be weird. Yeah. So this is that, that exact question is the point of the second half of Galatians chapter one. So really starting in Galatians 1 11 through 2 14. So Galatians 1 11 through 2 14 is going to talk about those exact questions. When was where was Paul and when? When did he go to Jerusalem? When did he meet up with Peter and the other apostles? How did they receive him? And then what's the after effects of that? Okay, that's really what that's all about. And Galatians um, explains part of it, and then the Book of Acts gives us gives us another part of the picture. So um, Acts fifteen. Acts 15 is the council at Jerusalem, and that's where they kind of get, okay, Paul's theology, the theology of the church of Jerusalem, 
and we're going to hammer this out and figure out which one is right. Okay, that's the Council of Jerusalem. And that that church council, the very first church council in history, they actually um, are the ones that say, yes, Paul is preaching the true gospel. Okay, that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works, is the true gospel. And Paul is right to be preaching it. And we all should. Okay, that's the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Thank you. Welcome. Anything I think else? Paul, Paul's uh, uh, apostleship, the way he came about it, reminds me a little bit of Melchizedek in the sense it was kind of out of the ordinary, not the norm. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And so you have these interesting parallels with, with things like that. The other interesting parallel with Paul that I want you to consider, uh, especially you, Scott, would be Jeremiah. This is an outsider who was commissioned by God almost against his will, and yet uh, then proclaims the word, and even says, God set me apart from birth for this, even though I didn't want it. So, so there's a lot of parallels between the prophet Jeremiah and the apostle Paul. Okay? See you, Jeremy. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a very good point, and, and that's a good parallel. I, want, you, you, I think you'd enjoy looking into that a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Okay, so the other the other theme going on in all this boy, this is taking too long to introduce, but that's okay. We'll get there. The other theme that I wrote down that I just want you to to, to think about, and we'll get there in a second, is active or or we should start with passive, passive righteousness and active righteousness. This is actually a major theme in the Book of Galatians. Is that there, there are two kinds of righteousness going on. There's an active righteousness, meaning you do it. And there's a passive righteousness, meaning you receive it like a cookie. Okay. You, you actually, exactly. So what Paul is going to say is that the righteousness that we have before God is passive. You don't do anything to get it. You receive it from God. Okay, so passive righteousness is our righteousness before God. And we, we don't do anything to get it. It is simply given to us as a gift. And then it, it belongs to us, not because we own it, but because it is ours in Christ. Okay, so this comes in Christ. Active righteousness then is now that we have received God's righteousness in Christ, we live righteous and holy lives. So then this is our righteousness before man, before mankind, right? Before other humans. So now that we have been made righteous by God's work in Jesus Christ to forgive our sins, then we live active, righteous lives. We actually do live out the will of God and we do this. We don't just sit around saying, I'm forgiven. That's all there is to it. No, we actually go live then according to the will of God. Okay. So this is also a point of Galatians is that it's really going to talk in the first half, really the first four chapters about this. And then chapters five and six are going to help us understand this. Okay. So there's a passive righteousness. That's us before God. And that's all earned by Jesus work on the cross. And then there's an active righteousness that we live out in response to God's gift of salvation to us. So 
out of thanksgiving for God's action in Christ to save us, we live holy and decent lives by loving him and serving our neighbor. Okay? So that's another thing we're going to trace as we go through Galatians. And we're going to see how Paul talks about that. Because a lot of bad theology comes when you get this mixed up. Okay? When you say, I'm going to earn righteousness before God. No, that's bad theology. Right? So what Paul is going to say is, our righteousness before God is passive. It's something we receive. Okay, any questions on that? Yeah, but I, on the work righteous mm -hmm. part, or how, how do we distinguish between what we're doing to get to heaven, if I'm saying the right words, are, are what, when we believe what Christ has done for us. Do you, uh, you understand kind of what I'm... What yeah, I'm, yeah. So very good I question. Mean, very good you question. know, you could, you could be, you know, in work righteous mode and, and, and not, and it could be this, you could, from the outside, it would look the same. Exactly right. It, it's, it might look the same, but this is the point, is that faith trusts in God's righteousness alone to save. I don't try to do anything to influence God. I don't say, well, look how good I am. You know, I ate my vegetables tonight. Look how good I am. I get to go to heaven. We don't say that. We say, when it comes to me and God, the only thing that counts is Jesus' death and resurrection. And that Jesus Christ, the passive righteousness is because we actually receive from Christ his righteousness. So when it comes before God, that's all that matters. We don't even bring up what we've done, right? We confess our sins, but we don't bring up and say, well, now you got to love me because I've been good. No, we just say, I'm a sinner. Forgive me, please, because of Jesus. And we trust in that righteousness. But then we get to work right away. And this is what you're getting at. Then we get to work right away in loving and serving neighbor. And some of the outside that won't know the difference. They're, they're going to think, we they might think that we're trying to earn God's love right? Because we're, we're busy trying to be good. And that's where, remember, witnessing is not actions. Witnessing is speaking. It's actually explaining this. So part of the thing is they might see us loving our neighbor and they say, what are you doing? And we explain to them, right? Because of what Christ has done for me, I'm loving with his love. Not in order to get God to love me, no, but because God loves me, and because God loves you, I'm going to live out my faith by serving my neighbor. Okay? And they're going to say, well, you think you're so great? And you're going to say, nope, I don't. I think Jesus is that great. Right? I think God's love is that great. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. Any other question? Anything else? All right, uh, the key verse of Galatians, let's just, I'll, I'll read it to you and you can just listen, but this is, this is kind of where we're getting to. This is where Paul summarizes the whole theology of the book, okay? So Galatians 2, verses 16 through, through 21, okay? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, this is, this is kind of a key verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, so that's really the theology of the book of Galatians kind of condensed into, into one little section is this, this strong statement of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which is not by the law. Okay, it's by faith instead of the law. So that's what we're going to get to. But then he doesn't let, it, let you off the hook because then he also does talk about, but we still live out our faith by observing God's law as we, as we live in love of neighbor. Okay, so we'll get there. Okay, any questions on the introduction? I know it takes forever. I'm sorry, but there we go. We all know where we are now. Any questions? Okay, let's read Galatians 1 verses 1 and 2. Someone read that for us. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Okay, thank you very much. Oh, yeah, to the church of Galatians. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Okay, very typical opening of Paul's letters. Um, if you read Paul's letters, they're going to pretty much all begin something similar to this. So very, very common opening for Paul's letters. Um, remember, in, in letter writing in the ancient world, they, they identify, identify themselves first. That's just kind of the way they did it. We, we do too sometimes in our letter writing. Um, that's just the way it goes. So how does Paul identify himself? What does he, what does he call himself? An apostle. An apostle. Good. Does he describe that any further? Not from men. Yeah. But from, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Yeah, so he's going to say, I'm an apostle, like we talked about. One of the issues of the letter is Paul claims to be an apostle, but he's not one of the 12. And so he's going to say, I'm an apostle, not from men, though, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he's an apostle, okay, from God and Jesus, which is kind of an interesting thing. Okay, now remember the word apostle means sent person. Okay, he's someone who is sent. And specifically in the New Testament times, apostle meant a plenty potentiary ambassador. Because some of you guys know that's some of my favorite words in the world right there. Plenty potentiary ambassador. And if you it just look what this means, potency is power. Plenty is like full. So this is an ambassador who goes with the full power of the one who sent him. Okay. So an apostle is a plenty potentiary ambassador of 
Jesus Christ and God the Father. What this means is, in practical reality, is when the plenipotentiary ambassador speaks, it's as though the person who sent them is actually there speaking. So they can sign documents for this person. They can, they can speak on the behalf of the person who sent them. So you think of this with a king's emissary who is empowered to sign a treaty or to speak for the king. Okay. So that's what Paul is claiming to be. He's saying, I'm an apostle. So when you hear me speak, you are hearing God's word. That's the claim he's making. All right. And that's kind of a major issue in the book of Galatians is he's going to have to defend that claim. You'll actually find this as you read Paul's writing in almost all of his letters. At some point, he'll defend this reality that, that when he speaks, he's actually speaking for God. Okay. Any questions on that? Okay, number two, we're just moving along now. So what is the source of all of our understanding of God? Jesus, revelation that he shared. Right, <clears throat> very good. So it's not, not from men, but through... Jesus. And this is the this is one of the New Testament things that I that I really encourage you all to consider as you read the scriptures and even as you think through life and your faith and philosophy and what you hear is that the only way that we are given to truly know who God is is through Jesus Christ. There is no way to know God outside of Jesus. And I know that sounds strange, but that actually is the witness of the New Testament is that the only way to truly know who God is, is to know Jesus Christ and to see him as the revelation of God, the father. That's actually the way we're given to know God. And this is, like I said, one of the, it might be the major teaching of the New Testament is that when you, when you see Jesus, you are learning who God is. And if you try to find God outside of Jesus, you will find a God that isn't real or a God that is a deception. Okay. And that's, that's part of Paul's point as well in Galatians is that this centrality, that the importance of Jesus Christ to be the one that we look at to learn who God is and to know everything we need to know about him. Okay. So any, any, Questions or thoughts on that? I've got a question and a thought. Did Paul have a credibility issue? Yes, he did. Because he used to kill Christians. That's the first problem. He used to kill Christians. And now he's preaching to the church, which is a real problem. And like I said, he's not one of the 12. So the churches are going, okay, you came and preached to us with authority and we believed you, but now we're hearing a different message, and we're wondering if your message was actually correct or not. That's that's what Galatians is going to address, is they're going, okay, Paul, you told us one thing, but some other teachers have taught us something else. How do we know that what you taught us is actually God's word? 
is actually something we should believe with our life. And he's going to defend that. One of the ways he's going to defend it is by, by defending that he is truly an apostle of Jesus Christ, not sent by men, but by sent, sent by Jesus Christ himself. Okay? And that, remember, whenever you get talking about sending in the New Testament, the sending starts with God the Father. So God sends Jesus to the church, right? And then the church, right? The apostles are sent to the church, okay? From and to the church, which is kind of a weird thing. So the apostles then are the way that this whole thing continues is that God sends Jesus first, then Jesus sends his apostles to the church and the church sends. Now the church also sends the apostles, which is what we get in the book of Acts. So there's this kind of mutual sending when it gets here, but it's, it's all, it starts with God sending Jesus. So in John chapter 20, in John chapter 20, after his resurrection, Jesus appears to his apostle, his disciples and says, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. And that's the commission to that, where they go, into apostleship in the gospel of John is that as the father has sent Jesus. So Jesus sends forth the 12, obviously not Judas, but the, and actually at that point, not Thomas either. So there's 10 of the 12, but he sends forth the apostles um, with, with the gospel and the forgiveness of sins to go and serve. Okay. So that's the sending that happens. And the question is, is Paul legitimately in that? And he's going to defend that. Yes, he is. Because Jesus himself sent him. Okay. Well, how Thank many you. apostles are there then? Good question. That's the question. Um, so there are technically 12. But there are at least 13. Sometimes 14. Sometimes more. So this is the problem. Is, is kind of capital A apostle means the 12. And the reason I say that's kind of iffy is because I am one of the people who believes that Matthias was not actually the right thing to do, that Paul is actually the 12th apostle according to God's will, that Paul is the, the one that, um, that actually fills the vacant role of Judas. Now, that's not attested to in scripture, so um, yeah, I'll get that reader. So, so I think there's 12, but then in the book of Acts, Barnabas is also called an apostle. So that'd be 13. And then there's other people who are become called apostles kind of as a, in a general sense. So then you kind of get these, what we say is a lowercase a apostle. I can't write lowercase. Hmm. So you get apostles going around kind of, so you have kind of the capital A apostles, the apostles. And then those apostles in the church send out other people because they're sent, they're also apostles. But it's kind of a different office than apostle. So there's kind of the apostles and then my other apostles. And we have those mentioned kind of throughout the New Testament. Okay, so it's hard to say. Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. Okay, so um, let's see. Number three then, who is Jesus? And this is obviously going to be the major content of the book of Galatians is who is Jesus and what does that mean for us? So let's look at number three. Who is Jesus? So he's not a man. He's not a man. <laughs> Maybe. Right. This is the fun thing, isn't it? 
So what is, I just want to show you this in the, in the text. Look at, look at verse one and just tell me from that, who is Jesus? One word answer. God. 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 Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But in verse one, you wouldn't get that. What does it say? What is Jesus? What is the word that defines that describes Jesus? Priest. Mm. Christ. Yeah. Christ. Christ. Okay. Jesus is Christ. And this is hugely important. It there are times in the New Testament where Christ is used as another name for Jesus, but there's also times when Jesus is described as Christ. And remember. Christ is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay. And these words, both either one would be translated as anointed one. And the reason this is important is because what, what Paul is claiming about Jesus is that he's the fulfillment of all the old Testament promises of God. He is the savior of God's people. This Jesus we're talking about, he is the Messiah. He is Jesus Messiah, okay? That's who he is. And this is the major claim in the book of Acts that Jesus is actually God's Christ. He is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. So when just don't skip over this. When it says, not through men, but through Jesus, who is the Christ, okay? He's the Christ, and he's the one whom God the Father raised from the dead. Okay? So what this means is you have this Christ Messiah idea, and then, Chris, you said not a man, but he is a man because he died and was raised. Okay? So remember, in Jesus, and, and someone else said God. Okay? So now we're going to get all these ideas of Jesus that in, in this one Jesus, you get both God and man, okay? And you get him as the Christ who died and was raised by God the Father, okay? Which what this means is that Jesus and God the Father are on the same page. They are united in this. Jesus and God the Father are not two separate ideas, right? They are united. So when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about God the Father. When you're talking about God the Father, you're talking about the one who sent Jesus Christ. And this is hugely important then because when it comes to salvation in Jesus, the question is, well, that's nice, Paul. You, you talk to us a lot about this Jesus guy and his death and resurrection. Well, what about God? What about the God of the Old Testament? What does he think about all this? And Paul's whole argument is the God of the Old Testament is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He is the one who sent Jesus to be the salvation of the whole world. And faith in this Jesus is the faith that saved the Old Testament saints. You know, you've heard of them like Abraham. He was saved by faith in Jesus. So the faith that I'm talking about is the same faith that God has always given to his people through which he saves them. And that's faith in Jesus as the Christ, the very son of God. Hey, Kevin. Yep. 
I was recently challenged um, by someone who asked me, did the divine, did God die on the cross? You know, divine and human nature were both involved. Yes. And this person thought just the human. And I said, no, I, I don't think it's just, I don't think it's just the human that was, you know, that died. It was, but right. she, yeah. So I've heard, you heard that people think, well, God can't die. Yeah. And, and so what we talk about because of this, this strange vocabulary we're forced into where Jesus is one person with two natures. Um, he does things that his natures can't do individually. Okay. So God, let's, let's, we're not dying in a second, but God can't be hungry. That's not possible for God to be hungry. I mean, it's just a philosophical impossibility for God to be lacking in something. It just doesn't make any sense. And yet it's very clear that Jesus gets hungry. God can't get sleepy. God can't not know things, all those kind of things. And yet Jesus does them. So what we say is when Jesus does something that appears to be impossible for one of his natures, we say he does it according to the, the nature that has that quality in itself. Okay. So we say he dies on the cross according to his human nature. But we also confess that in everything Jesus does, both natures are active. Okay. So in everything Jesus does, it might be according to his human nature, but his divine nature doesn't leave. Right. It's actually part of it. So this one Jesus with two natures, we might say, well, he gets hungry according to his human nature. He walks on water according to his divine nature. But the human Jesus walked on water and the divine Jesus got hungry. Okay. So on the cross, the culmination of all of this, it's, it's Jesus who dies on the cross. So that means both natures are active, even though we would say the mortality of Jesus is according to his human nature, but his, his divine nature is certainly present. It doesn't leave him. Okay. Um, that's actually an ancient heresy, uh, where, where the divine nature leaves Jesus on the cross or something and poor Jesus, the man is left there going. And so some people take, that's the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would some people think that means his divine nature has left him, but that's, that's actually, um, there's not a clock behind me. It's in front of me. We have three minutes. First, we have lots of time. So go to first John, since we studied that like six months ago, right? First John, this is, this is the verse. This is the verse for your Christology. You want to learn all of biblical Christology in one verse? Here you go. First John chapter one, verse seven. Okay. First John, so not the gospel of John, but first John. So go almost all the way to the end of the New Testament, right? Almost all the way to the end. You got first John, second John, third John, Jude, and Revelation. So you're almost at the end of the New Testament. First John chapter one, verse seven. This is your Christology verse. Okay. Just memorize it. First John chapter one, verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, this is the point. Listen to this. And the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sins. The reason this is so important is because Jesus is described as both God's son, so he's divine, and he has blood, so he's human. And that, those two natures in this one Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So you don't get rid of one nature to have just the blood of Jesus. You have the blood of Jesus, who is God's son, 
cleanses us from all sins. So in this one verse, this is how the scriptures talk about it, is that this Jesus is both divine and human, and everything he does for our salvation involves both natures. Thank you. That right? affirms what I was trying to defend, but I didn't do a great job. But Well, just first John 1, 7 is all you need. Yeah. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Okay, does that make sense? Anybody have any questions on that or... Yeah, when I was reading in the, I hate to pull the formula conquered card, but oh, they boy, talked about how, how how his two natures were like two pieces of wood that were glued together and you can't separate them. Okay, that so that's actually an ancient heresy again. Um, so there's this dude named Nestorius who was trying to fight against this other dude named Arius. Okay, and Nestorius said that Jesus is one person but his nature is like two, two pieces of wood that were glued together. And so you could actually pull them apart and say, well, you know, there's a human Jesus running around and a divine Jesus running around, but usually they were together. And what the ancient church said is no, they're not separable like that. You can't separate yeah. the natures. Yeah. They're glued and you can't separate them. Yeah. They're not, they're not just glued. They're, 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 yeah, well, they're, they're not yeah. mixed. Okay. So okay, there, yeah. there's a, there's a, you can't pull them apart, but they're not mixed because if you mix them, now you're into Eutychianism. So there's a guy named Eutychius that was teaching that they were mixed together. Okay. So, and this is the problem when you get to Christology, this is why first John one seven is so helpful is you're always balancing one Jesus with two natures. And whenever you start getting too specific, you start making mistakes. Yeah, Kevin. Right? Peter. I was just going to add that in reading the various documents in the Book of Concord, it, you, I always have to be careful because sometimes it'll switch from the here's what we believe to here's the heresies we reject, and it's not immediately clear that they've made the move from one to the other. So when the formula of Concord talks about that, that's in the section of this is a heresy we reject, but depending right. on which version you're reading, the editor might not have made it entirely clear that is true. Hey, we, and, we've and switched now. We're now arguing. Here's the things we're against and that we don't confess. Here's the heresy we're fighting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should I say that. It's like a different type or something. Yeah, you're, you're both right. I think yeah. the first time I read through it, I didn't catch that was the negative. Yep. It's a negative thesis. Yeah. That's exactly it's, right. It's really easy to miss the apology to the Augsburg Confession. It's even yeah. worse. It's very the hard. Confessions go right. on for so long, you forget that the entire 50 pages you just read was the negative. Yeah, we're against you all. You think that, that they're starting to move into the other. It's like, oh, what is going on? See, yeah. this is why Galatians is good because it's only like, you know, five pages long and you're good. Okay. So that's where we're going in Galatians. We're going to now talk the rest of our time together. We're going to talk about what is this gospel that Paul teaches. It's all focused on Jesus Christ. It's all focused on God saving us by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And then the last two chapters of Galatians will help us understand that now that we're saved in Christ, how then shall we live, right? And so we're going to spend a little bit of time also talking about that. Um, in the middle there, we'll talk about Paul's reasoning on why he says these things and how he gets there. So that's what's ahead of us. Um, any questions before we pray and go? We're a little after time, so I will pray and we can go. And then if you want to stick around and ask questions... I got all night so we can hang out. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, in your grace and your mercy, you have provided for us a Savior. Though we are sinful and unclean, though we live rebellious lives against your will, following our own will all the time, yet you are a God who loves and delights to forgive. So we rejoice this night. 
that because of Jesus, you call us righteous. You call us forgiven. You call us your children. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. Lord, we are beset with many things in this world that confuse us, that scare us, that make us question, maybe even doubt you. So this night we beg you that you would give us of your spirit to give us faith, to lift our eyes up, to see your glory in Christ and to trust that even when we can't see your glory in Christ reigns in this world. So bless us now this night with a peaceful rest in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Thank Kevin. you. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Thanks Kevin. Good to begin on a new journey. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. You're welcome. Good to see you. Hi, Robin. Happy birthday, Cindy. <laughs> Hey, Kevin, I got a question. Yep. The apostles, the small A apostles, not the capital A, are they plenty potentiary ambassadors like the other ones or not? You know, they were never, they never speak that way. Um, that, that is kind of part of the issue is they were sent forth with the authority of the church, but not necessarily sent forth as direct representative of Jesus. Okay. Okay. So they represent the church. Whereas the capital A apostles are actually walking around saying, we're speaking to you God's word. And the other apostles say, we are speaking in the end of the church. Sure. Now, what the difference is sometimes is a little fuzzy, right? So basically the capital A apostles are going to write scripture. The little A apostles really can't. Right. Thanks. Yep. You're welcome. Any other questions or thoughts? I'm trying to find the board. I printed it out. Yeah, it is in the affirmative. It's in it's in the affirmative. It's on number five. It says the two natures are united personally. We believe teach and confess that this union is not such a copulation and connection that neither nature has anything in common with the other personally. Mm -hmm. And then they say, because of the personal union as when two boards are glued together where neither gives anything to the other or takes anything from the other. So they use that gluing example in the affirmative. If I'm reading this right. Which edition is that? Oh, I don't know. I, I found a PDF that I could print out. So maybe uh, it's... What are the numbers on it? I'll look it up. <clears throat> I don't so, mean it. It's under the person of Christ. Right. So it's a... Valid uh, declaration? Yeah. Of Section 8. Yeah, that's going to be... And then uh, status controversia. Right. They have, they have about the... So the... Nature, and then they have affirmative theses. So have, what they're affirming in that is that the two natures are not mixed. Yeah. And that they do actually. Okay. So here, here's the issue in the two natures of Christ is that the two natures of Christ, they never mix. So they're, the divine nature doesn't become a human nature. Human nature doesn't become divine nature, nor do they mix to become a third substance. 
Okay, that's Eutychianism. Um, so what you want to affirm is that the divine nature is always the divine nature, but the person of Jesus receives from the divine nature, the characteristics of the divine nature, and from the human nature, the characters of the human nature. So What's the person of Jesus. <clears throat> okay, say, Peter, you got the paragraph number there. Well, I think it's, I think it's five. Okay. So the, so the person of Jesus receives from both natures, the characteristics of the natures. Okay. And both natures are always active in the person of Jesus. Those are the, the first two gainuses. Okay. So we're going to always be talking about language that helps us not confuse the natures. That's the boards. Okay. But you also can't separate the natures in the person of Jesus. That's the gluing together. Now the point, the point that I was making was the boards glued together was actually a heresy by Nestorius because what he said is that you can actually separate the two natures like two. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So what they're saying is we're going to take these two natures and, and make sure they're always together in the person of Jesus. Okay. So what happens is all of this arises and you, you know, this Scott, because Arius came in and said, Jesus is not the eternal son of God. There was a time in which the son of God didn't exist, right? In which Jesus didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And, and so that became the major controversy in the church. And so they said, no, no, no. The person of Jesus is the eternal son of God, the eternal logos. And so what happened was Nestorius came along and said, the two natures in Jesus are like two boards. He's fighting Arius, right? He's saying the divine nature of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus, you don't have a halfway eternal Jesus. You have a fully eternal Jesus because of the, the two natures, right? So he's good. He's on our side. He's fighting Arius. But what happened is he became too specific because Arius was like, well, wait a minute, don't explain this. And Ned Storia said, well, it, like two boards, you can pull them apart. You could yeah. say, well, there's a human Jesus, there's a divine Jesus. And that's where we said, no, that's a heresy. Yeah. Okay. So that's where the board, the board thing usually comes from is a discussion of the story. Yeah. Okay. So that's why, that's why I tripped your trigger about a heresy because that was actually. That actually is a heresy. Yeah. That you can. I'm not sure what their, I can't remember what their argument is in that. Yeah. I'm trying to find that. I can't find the board being mentioned in the affirmative yet. And I'm okay. I've got the trigoglotta. I'll get it and see if it did. I just found this online in Hay, so maybe it's... Hold it up for a second. Yeah, usually there'll still be the paragraph numbers, oh, unless it completely removed it. I don't think it's going to help you. Okay. I think it's in the status questionos. It's not in the affirmatives. I think it's in the previous section. My book of Concord is upstairs, or all of them. Yeah. Oh, uh, so that, anyway, I... We'll figure it out. But so yeah. so then what happened was as we as we keep going down the trail here, then after Nestorius came a guy named um, Apollinarius, and he said that in the person of Jesus, the the divine nature or the logos is actually his brain or his mind, his noose. Okay, and his body is his human nature. So then you said. He's against Arian also. He's on our side. He's against Arian. But then he also went too far and he said, no, the human nature is the body of Jesus and the logos, the divine nature is the brain, is the mind. And so we said, no, Apollinarianism is wrong. So Nestorianism is destroyed. Apollinarian is destroyed. And then Eutychius came along and said, well, you guys got it all messed up. It's just like there's a third nature which doesn't exist, neither human nor divine. It's the combination of the two. 
and that's Eutychianism. So then you have well, a blended up. All three end up being philosophical. They're trying to solve it philosophically. Right. When so they're, they're all like, fighting against Arius. Hello, this is a mystery. You're, ex- right. you're over explaining it, people. That's exactly right. So what happens in all of those, they're fighting against Arius. They're trying to affirm the, the eternality of the Son of God and the divinity of the, of the person of Jesus. And we're all for that. But they all go too far. And so this is what the Nicene Creed is written to kind of explain is that we're not going to explain this. We're simply going to say, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, right, from all things were made, right? And so it's, it's very explicit in expressing his divinity and his humanity, and yet we don't go much further than that. So that's and why we've adopted the language. Other than the mode. Athanasian Creed, that goes further. Yeah, kind of, except for it actually, it actually goes further by saying this. Yeah, it's longer, but it doesn't say anymore. Yeah. And and so that's and so then that's why you develop the language of according to. So they say, well, how can God get hungry? Well, he does that according to. That's what I was explaining earlier with the according to language. Does that make could sense? Be, yeah. Could, could I be so bold as to ask one more quick? I think it's quick. Sure. What is it? Is it a identified heresy where somebody says, well, Jesus never used his divine nature on earth. He never used his divine nature. And I, I, that's what I actually started looking in this section. Is because that, is it, it that he so, used the Holy Spirit's power, not his yes, own? Yes. Yeah, that's actually, yes. that's the result of what's called kenoticism. Yeah. Kenosis. Kenoticism. Okay. Kenosis. So, yeah. That sounds like hardening of the arteries. <laughs> kenoticism is the heresy so in philippians chapter 2 it says that jesus emptied himself yeah. and became a servant yep. or became found in fashion as a man and so the heresy that actually arose from that is that jesus actually emptied himself of his divine nature yes that's exactly what they said okay right and well, then what happens is you need something to fill in the gap so we can still do divine things that's the holy spirit yeah and so then the teaching is you can have the same holy spirit Yes, One of that's, the places you'll hear that popularly today is Bill Johnson out of Bethel, Reading in California. Yeah, yeah, he uh, actually continues Todd, to teach this mm-hmm. actively, like he specifically and explicitly teaches it that way. Todd White, it's it's the word faith people word faith. and yeah. circles and signs because that's how they say you can do this too because you have the same Holy Spirit yeah. just like Jesus did, yeah. so you should be able to do all those same things. So this is the heresy that they use to to justify yeah. that. So that, that's the ancient heresy of kenoticism, which is the Greek word for emptying, to empty himself of his divinity. Was that at the same time as Arianism or different? You know, I don't know when kenoticism really started taking hold. That's a, that's a good question. Um, it's not in the same line of Christological heresies. That's a good question. I don't know when kenoticism. Peter, who did really... you say? What, what was that person's name you mentioned, Peter? One of teaches? the most popular is Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson. He's at Bethel Church in Redding, California. We're saying his name, but not advocating that you go listen to him teach. No, he's I understand. Part of, he's part <laughs> of the New Apostolic Reformation. There's actually 12 of these guys and maybe some women, 12 of them, and they're the new apostles, and this yeah. is all this is their thing. They're gonna claim dominion over the world and bring Jesus yeah. bring Jesus' kingdom to earth using gotcha. all the signs and wonders and everything. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for letting me hog all the time, guys. I sure, appreciate right, it. cool. I'm always happy to talk about Christology. <laughs>
I'll find this. I'll see if this references that on the earlier topic. I'll see how it matches up with triglotta because yeah. that's how I knew where to look. And then when I found it, I, it's so hard to copy that book. It's so tight. I thought yeah. I'll just find it online. So maybe it's right. different. Well, I'll look, I can look too. Um, we'll find it. Nothing, if nothing else, we'll read the Cover of the Concord on Christ, which is cool. Which which version do we need? I've I've got Kolb and 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 McCain. I've got I've got Tappert upstairs. Yeah, I've got oh, Tappert. Mine's Tappert. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, don't you guys don't worry about. It. I'll find it. I, okay, I know where bookshelves, the and with my new bookshelves, they're all like right here. I can just That's right easy to look at. Get them right there. It's awesome. Bookshelves are good. Yep. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate Thank you. it. We'll see you. Yeah. Probably end YouTube now.